Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Jack Pitts, a partner at Blackstone, where he serves as the general counsel for Blackstone Alternative Asset Management. Jack has an incredible journey, and his career has been one in law within finance. And so this is a new, unique perspective that we're bringing onto the podcast today, and we hope you enjoy it. As a co-chair of the Blackstone Diverse Professionals Network Task Force and a member of the Blackstone Charitable Foundation Leadership Council, it's no exaggeration to say that Jack has made a real impact in finance and in his time at Blackstone and aligns with our values and our mission at Scholars of Finance, making finance a force for good. And I'm thrilled to call Jack a friend and a supporter of ours, where he's been one of the champions of our partnership with Blackstone. In this episode, we dive deeply into Jack's story, his really, really unique upbringing. We talk about his role being an attorney in law within finance um, and his career doing that, structuring deals, working with partners across the business. We talk about building DEI in finance a little bit. We talk about how the firm hires, We talk about work-life balance. We cover a lot of ground. This is our first time having a lawyer or an attorney on, someone from the legal side of finance on the podcast. So it's a really interesting perspective. And I hope you find this as insightful as we did. And without further delay, we bring you Jack Pitts. Jack Pitts, what a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast today, my friend. First of all, how are you and where are you calling in from? I'm great. Thank you so much, Ross, for having me. My first podcast for everyone listening. So hopefully I don't stumble too much, but I'm calling in from the office. I'm I'm in New York City at 345 Park Ave. As a general counsel at Blackstone, I don't think any of us are expecting you to stumble too badly, right? At least in a way that you'll regret. (laughs) Exactly, exactly, right? (laughs) We're so happy to have you on the podcast, Jack. I've been looking forward to this. We've been planning this for a while and There's so much to talk about with the limited time that we have to try to plumb like the depths and tomes of your wisdom and experience. I would love to dive right in. Jack, first, begin by sharing your story. Take us back to the early days through grade school, college, up till today. Tell us the story of Jack Pitts. Yeah, so I'm a Michigan boy. If you talk to me, you know anything about me, I am very proud of being from the state of Michigan. I was born in Lansing, Michigan, grew up between East Lansing, Michigan, where Michigan State University is, go green, and also spent some time outside of Detroit in the Detroit suburbs for a few years. And that had to do with my father getting moved out there for a period of time. So a very important part of my upbringing, when we moved to the Detroit area, I was going into the fourth grade, I believe. And it was like the beginning of what I like to call my sports career, right, where I was able to learn a lot about myself and also play with some of the most phenomenal athletes in the Detroit gyms and playgrounds and fields where I really grew as an athlete, as a person. It really 
taught me how to, you know, you get knocked down, you got to get back up. When you're playing against kids in the fourth and fifth grade that are already dunking a basketball, it can give you some stuff to aspire to <laughs> or make you feel really bad about yourself. That stands out a lot for me. You know, I went to a school called Pleasant Lake Elementary, and I can remember my last year there, the end of the year where you get the, the student awards and everything. And my parents still talk about it to this day, but it was, you know, I must have won every single award in social studies and science and math and even got a presidential award. And I can remember going up to the stage and people in the stand, like, who is this kid? And my principal at the time, this stands out to me as he called me up to get my last award. You know, he had tears in his eyes. That was a pivotal point. I talked about the athletic piece, but also academically for me, as we were moving back to Lansing, which I can get into as well, that gave me a lot of confidence in myself and my abilities from an academic mm-hmm. perspective, you know, that, hey, I'm smart, right? I can do this. That is something that really, I think, catapulted me as I continued in my athletic and academic career. So moved back to East Lansing and I'm of, of Spartan blood, so my parents both went to Michigan State University. My mom was an art major, and my dad was an economics major, but also played football at Michigan State. And then I'm I'm Jack Pitts Jr., so you know you move back to a, a town where your your dad starred on on the football field. It's a lot to live up to, and when we moved back, my father actually did not want my brother and I to play football. I have a younger brother and and an older sister because he had a very bad neck injury at at Michigan State, ended his career. He wanted us to play golf. He had (laughs) his clubs and and he was a, you know, scratch golfer. And he's like, if you guys just play golf and and nothing else, I'd be as, as happy as I could be. But he knew deep down, given, you know, the folklore that we heard about, you know, him being a high school All-American that threw with both hands and coming out of Decatur, Georgia, and then going to Michigan State in the 1960s when they were national champions. No way that we were not going to play football. And so ended up doing that and was decent in, in high school. I joke. I ended up going and playing in college at Division II, and I was the only Division II player in my family. Given my dad played at Michigan State, and my younger brother ended up going to Central Michigan and playing with a bunch of really good players there. But I also was the only one that made it through college without a you know significant injury. So I went to Hillsdale College, a small liberal arts school in, in Michigan, 1,200 students or so. And I went there because, one, academically, I thought it put me in a really, really good spot. Two, they were recruiting me as a quarterback. I was, I was a quarterback. I still think I am a quarterback today. Every single position possible, quarterback, receiver, running back, and finished my career as defensive back. But that was only part of the story. You know, I think academically it was challenging and You know, I had always wanted to go to law school. And I think that being in that small liberal arts environment where you get a lot of one-on-one with with your professors and you really learn how to to write, I think there was no better preparation for law school than what I experienced at Hillsdale. Putting aside how, how poorly we performed as a whole on the football field, 
I'm very pleased with what, what happened academically. So from there it was to Mother Howard. I went to Howard University School of Law and wow, best three years of my life. You know, I love Howard dearly, the professors, the administration, the students, of course. I met my wife first year there. We were in the same section and really blossomed as not only as you know a young lawyer in training, but also who I am and going from Hillsdale, which was a, a predominantly white institution to mm-hmm. historically black college like Howard, I got both ends of the spectrum really. And I think both of those experiences shaped me. To talk about confidence, I mentioned it as an elementary school student and, and receiving the awards and being recognized. And then you go to a college where you're you know, oftentimes the only black person in a classroom. At one point, I was the only black player on the team, on the football team, to Howard, where, you know, it's, it's you know, you're surrounded by others that, that look like you. But you get something out of both of those situations, right? And it, it really teaches you how to adapt, to move, to communicate in all walks of life. Wouldn't change a thing about it. Absolutely not. I appreciate you sharing so many different elements of your early days. Talking about Howard School of Law, what inspired you to pursue a career in law? And how did that experience influence the rest of your career? Aside from obviously you remaining a lawyer and a general counsel today. (laughs) There is one particular person that still aspired to to be like, and that's my aunt, Michelle Coleman Mays, the only other lawyer in my family. She was a U of M. I mentioned I'm a, a Spartan blood, but I still have some love for the Wolverines as well, but she was a U of M undergrad and law school graduate and just a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, attorney. She has been uh, you know, general counsel of Fortune 500 companies and currently is the general counsel of the New York Public Library and gave me a picture of excellence that, that I could look to and really want to emulate. And you know, what a, a phenomenal orator. I always joke that if I could be half a good public speaker as her, then watch out world. But just, I still remember her looking at my shoes and if I didn't have them shine and have taps on them, boy, would she get on me. So, I mean, it was every attention to detail that you could imagine. And, you know, she was also the one when I was applying to, to law school and it was largely looking at schools in, in the Midwest, set for Howard. You know, I got in and she said, you're going to Howard. I said, well, what about these other, Jack? Trust me, Howard. And we were grateful for that piece of advice. And she's never steered me wrong. And I never really challenged her on it. But that was that was one where she told me, you know, that that's going to be the best place for you. And absolutely it was. And so she's the reason. She's my why. And she's still around. She's in New York, of course. And you know, a big reason why I came to New York out of Howard was because of her as well. And she guided me through the law firm process. And then when it was time to consider coming to Blackstone, I, you know, talked to her morning and night about it. And, and she's, again, never steered me wrong and someone I continue to aspire to be like, for sure. Well, Aunt Michelle, thank you so much for inspiring this incredible man. If you're listening to this podcast right now, appreciate you sharing that, Jack. It's it's interesting. Take us now into the beginning of your career. Walk us through your career from when you left Howard till today. 
some of the big moments, some of the challenges you faced and how you overcame them, some of the big decision points, how you thought through those. Walk us through your career so far. Any of the, the lawyers or aspiring lawyers or law students know that that first year at, in law school is very important. Um, it sets you up for you know, not only your interviews going into your, that summer between your, your second and third year, but also for things like law review and, and all of those extracurricular activities that are very important and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to do very well my first year at Howard, ended up making a law journal and also having my pick of law firms to go to, kind of split between New York firms and, and Washington, D.C. firms, all with a, a corporate element to it. I knew that I wanted to do something transactional. I didn't really see myself being a litigator. I like the, the business portion of it, and that probably explains why I, I am where I am today. Um, so I, I knew that very early on. Ross, if you ask me how and why, probably couldn't tell you, but I just knew I wanted to be around deals. I wanted to make things happen. I wanted to, to build business, right? And so I ended up going to Devil Boys in Plimpton, and I joined the asset management group there. So I summered in 2007, which people might say was the last great summer for summer associates for the law firms. Things did change a bit in 2008, if you recall. So I started as a full-time associate in the fall of 2008. And even though all this stuff was going on around me, I will tell you, I walked in and it was as busy as you could ever imagine on the asset management, the fund formation side. And, you know, it, it's a, a testament to the practice at Devil Boys. I'm now one of their clients, so it's still a, a very prominent asset management practice. But we were we were busy. And, you know, I was fortunate to come in with a group of partners there that really took me under their wing, trained me extremely well and gave me a lot of responsibility early on. And I felt like that throughout my time at Devil Boys that, you know, there were people that really had a vested interest in my career and wanted to train me and also wanted to give me that responsibility, which I'm forever grateful for and appreciative. And it was very much a head down, build a lot of hours, work with a lot of clients and did a lot of good work. I was a third year associate. And I, I tell this story often when two of my colleagues came in my office one day and said, Jack, someone's trying to get in touch with you to go over an interview with Blackstone. And we're going over as well. They want one of us, we're three in our class within my group, and we're all going over. And I said, guys, I don't even know what you're talking about. You know, I billing however many hours, not answering the phone for any type of recruiters, didn't even have my resume together, but thank goodness I listened to them and they're still very good friends to this day. And they, they, they're all very, both very successful, but I did pick up the phone and, and I took the interview and what still blows me away is the people that I met during my first interviews the people that ultimately, some of them I still work with today that interviewed me back then. But I walked out of the interviews thinking, wow, you know, not only is it the brand of, of Blackstone, but there's some really interesting, nice, hardworking, and definitely smart people that I met, right? And so that was what ultimately 
convinced me that this was going to be a good move for me. And I think the opportunity to combine the legal with the, the great business powerhouse of Blackstone, I just couldn't pass that up. And I'm, I'm thankful that I, I made that decision. The future that lies ahead, of course. You know, I'm not surprised that you weren't interested in being a litigator. You were, I think, one of the nicest finance executives I know. <laughs> and forgive me any other execs listening, but man, Jack, I couldn't imagine you being a litigator with how friendly and, and jovial and kind you are. And it's cool to hear that, you know, in the 10 years at Blackstone, you've enjoyed it so much, really found a sense of calling and purpose and meaning here. And obviously you've been very successful now as the general counsel of Blackstone Alternative Asset Management, right? One of Blackstone's largest divisions. So clearly successful by every single measure, even amongst the best of them. I'm curious, what do you consider to be the highlights of your career so far? In these 10 years at Blackstone, what have been some of the high points? A lot of high points and some low ones too. I, I don't want anybody to think that it's been all up. And for anybody listening out there that's you know either earlier in their career or even late, I think it's important to enjoy and celebrate the high times, but boy, am I very thankful for the low times too, because it was the, the challenges that really helped shape me and really tested me. And I feel like this stage, there's going to be more challenges. I'm going to get knocked down, but I know and I'm very confident that I'll get back up. But, you know, you, you mentioned highlights. When I got here, there was very much this sense of, you know, Jack, not going to let you drown, but you're going to be, you know, you're going to be swimming pretty hard, right? When I walked in and Tia Brakely, uh, you know, hopefully she'll, she'll listen to this, but she was a big part in, in hiring me and, and kind of my first real boss at the firm. She was very, you know, not only did she train me, but did she give me the responsibility that I really needed at that point in my career. And that was a big highlight also. You know, I walk in, I'm new, and I always felt like substantively I could figure out anything. I like solving problems. And, and I know that people are going to come to me with issues and, and things that aren't going well. And I like getting in and, and, and being challenged with those. So that was never a concern for me. But learning a place like Blackstone is that that that, that is challenging. And I, and I tell people that come in that are new. That's going to be your hardest part, but don't don't get frustrated with it. Don't feel like you're not going to figure it out. You will. It just takes a little bit of time. But the responsibility that, that I received and, and then the people that were great mentors for me from day one, that has been a big highlight of my career. And I wouldn't be here without people stretching me you know, in terms of the assignments and the projects that, that I got to work on, but also really mentoring me. And when I talk about mentorship, it's not always going to be peaches and cream. You, know, you need someone that can tell you, hey, Jack, you should think about doing this differently or pay attention to that, that element of something. And sometimes, you know, give you the stuff that is very constructive and not just all, Jack, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. You want to have people around you that can tell you what you're not doing so well so that you can improve them. And that's something that I try to do when I'm, I'm mentoring people and, and give them things that I think they can do better. I think also just the idea that you come into a place like Blackstone and you do 
take on different challenges and responsibilities and your role grows at a firm like this does really, it gives me a sense of, of accomplishment. It goes back to what your organization is founded on, right? Integrity and ethics and, and humility. I've always felt like I am only as good as the people around me. And some of that comes from, from sports and being a quarterback and being a leader of a team. I know that I can't do anything if I don't have an offensive line in front of me or I don't have a receiver to throw it to. And I've taken great pride in having a great group of individuals around me and their successes are my successes, right? So the other highlight that I would point to is just being able to manage individuals, being able to see their successes and see them do well, challenge them and really put the focus on them more than me, that I think I get great, great pleasure out of and, and, and a sense, another sense of pride. And then it, it keeps me humble too. I appreciate the note you end on. The highlight being seeing others succeed. It typifies you as a, as a person. And I think the world needs a lot more of that. People just focused on serving and helping others. It seems like one of the highest leverage values or principles we could en masse adopt in our day-to-day. It's interesting. It, I want to dive into your role a little bit, you know, what you actually do at Blackstone for our listeners. For our more senior executives, they would understand what you do as the general counsel in an alternative asset management group. For our students, they don't know nearly as much. For our earlier career professionals, they probably don't know the intricacies and complexities of what you do day to day. In your bio, it says your role involves structuring BAMs, customized multi-manager portfolios, also analyzing and negotiating opportunities in BAMs, special situations investing group for the more seasoned finance professionals listening. You know, give the the clear detailed explanation of what you do as general counsel at BAM. And then what I'd love to do is for our younger listeners, our student listeners, really unpack that and call it layman's terms. As general counsel of what we refer to as BAM, which is one registered investment advisor among many within what we refer to also as the hedge fund solutions group at Blackstone. So it really does function as a mini Blackstone within Blackstone because we have four other business units. We have a, a GP states business, a seating platform. We have Blackstone Principal Solutions, which is our allocator to other hedge funds. And then we have our special sits platform, which is, you know, a more multi-strat co-investments and other direct investing platform. So I'm responsible for all things legal across those businesses. And there are other sub-businesses within those that we, you know, we recently launched our, our Blackstone Generations platform which sits within the BAM side of the house, but it's focused on longer term endowments, capital that we're very excited about. And that's something that I'm also responsible for now. And if you ask me that question tomorrow, Ross, there might be another business in the way that we, we tend to grow here at Blackstone. So my day-to-day involves obviously everything legal across those businesses, but also protecting the brand is where it kind of stops with me but also making sure that we're able to be great stewards of capital and and investors for our LPs, right? And so you want to balance the commercial aspect of what you do at a place like Blackstone with the legal and protective aspect of protecting the firm, protecting the brand, and making sure that we're doing things 
as far above board and away from the line as possible. This is our MO here at Lastin. So that's the high level. When you get into the detail of it, there was a time when I was drafting documents, very much managing counsel on deals and launching funds on a felt like daily basis. I get a little bit of that these days, Ross, but it's more of an oversight. And, and again, it goes back to giving the responsibility to others to be able to run those and, and really be making sure that I'm managing and, and overseeing everything, but, but answering the tough questions, giving the tough advice at times and making sure that we're staying ahead of things. I think that's very important. And also when you're in an in-house legal function, you tend to operate as a hub for the business, right? So you're dealing with not only the investors, but you're dealing with the, the client professionals. You're dealing with the operational professionals. You're dealing with the treasury and accounting professionals. Everything comes through you, right? Because you're managing the contracts and everything that will tell those individuals what they need to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And also what we're responsible for, for, for our investors and for the transactions that we execute, right? So you really have to be on top of everything, right? And it doesn't, mm -hmm. it ends up not just being purely legal at times. You'd be surprised at what types of questions come across my desk and have come across my desk over the years. And I think that's, that's an important way to, as a lawyer in-house, to create value to think about yourself as not only a lawyer, but again, it goes back to something that I really enjoy, problem solving, right? And how you can help navigate through different types of issues to help your business succeed. And so that's that's how I think about what, what is a great general counsel is, is being able to manage all those situations. There's a big personnel component to it, an administrative component to it as well but also protecting the house, protecting the brand, and making sure that we're, we're being great stewards of capital and, and generating great returns for, for our investors. Right, I appreciate you sharing the high level and the detailed view in a way that all of our listeners, I would imagine, will find interesting. One quick question I wanted to ask you, piggybacking on this, is to build empathy for the legal teams in financial firms. I remember my time at SoFi when I was at, back at SoFi before stepping into scholars of finance full time, not just SoFi, there was a healthy back and forth between you know, your revenue producing functions, your marketing functions, your compliance, regulatory legal functions. And I've always been a huge fan of our compliance partners, of our legal partners, of our risk teams, because they're the ones keeping us in business and stopping us from making the mistake that could in five minutes ruin what took five decades to build, right? And so I guess a question for you, you're the first time we've ever had somebody in the legal sphere come on the podcast yeah. um, for investing in integrity. What are a couple of things you want <laughs> the investor audience listening to hear or to know about their legal partners, about their general counsel? Uh, what do you wish they knew that more people knew? I'm happy you hit on that, Ross, because when I was coming over from, from the law firm to, to in-house, you do hear the stories about how in-house lawyers can be treated. And it's not all flattering, right? It can be challenging. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, well, look, you hear how that can be. I don't, I don't think it's going to be, but I wouldn't, I didn't experience it until I experienced it, right? And 
what I will tell you is I've never really experience some of the negativity that you hear and maybe that's it's it's unique to Blackstone but I can tell you it's it's always been and this is something that I think should be universal when you talk about legal and compliance with investment professionals and everyone else is that it's one of partnership and I've always felt like with my investment colleagues and my client facing colleagues that we were necessary, we were helpful, we were part of the team. And it was very much a partnership that we worked together to get things done. And they relied on me. And I can remember this very early on in my career, it is a pie eating contest, right? And the, and the prize is more pie. And so you end up having repeat customers coming back and, and wanting to work with you on deals and projects and other things. And so I think people need to understand that we all have a common goal. We should have a common goal. I'm not here to to shut down everything. I'm here to help find solutions to problems, right? But also, I want to be very much protective of you and the firm. And so if you understand that and there's a common understanding amongst you and your colleagues, then you do really generate a partnership that ultimately ends up in success for everyone. And for my, my legal and compliance professionals out there, that's what you want. And you really want, people talk about a cost center and things like that. That's only there if you, you let it happen. You have to be the one that helps generate value in yourself, right? You need to be able to find ways to be helpful to the business, to generate creative solutions to, to problems, and be responsible, responsive, and proactive and what you do on your day-to-day. -day. And that that is how you break down some of those barriers and some of those things you may hear about at, at certain places to create that partnership between your investment professionals and your, your legal compliance professionals. Beautifully said, beautifully said. I hope that some of our listeners are rethinking potentially some recent conversations they've had with their legal and compliance partners. Yes, and, I and, hope uh, so too. I hope so too. <laughs> and thinking about their, their future conversations. With just a few minutes left, Jack, I would love to hit a rapid fire round. It's going to be a bit of a longer rapid fire round. I want to hit you with, we got five minutes. I want to hit you with five questions if you're okay. up for it. I'm up for it. Let's do it. All right. All right. Buckle up. So rapid fire number one, in addition to your role as a partner at Blackstone, as general counsel of BAM, you serve as the co-chair of the Blackstone Diverse Professionals Network Task Force. Can you share a little bit about the task force, the key goals your team's working towards? Task force is all encompassing, I'll say that. Um, so it covers all things related to underrepresented minorities at the firm and really one focused on recruitment, retention, promotion, and also advancing the dialogue amongst our, our underrepresented employees, as well as a broader firm on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. One thing that we're doing now is expanding that for the first time through our Count Me In campaign. We're, we're asking for folks to self-identify as, as who they are, if they so choose, within our U.S. offices. And we're building out identity groups, right? So we're going to have the Black, Latino, East Asian, South Asian groups to you know really broaden what we're doing on the diversity, equity, and inclusion Thanks, Jack. It sounds like some pretty important work. Very Second important. rapid fire question. Since many of our listeners are college students and young professionals, can you give us some insight into how Blackstone thinks about hiring? What makes a young professional stand out as a strong candidate? And then what makes them stick around and grow within the firm long term? 
we want you to bring your whole self to work, but we also want you to bring that energy and, and intellectual curiosity, I like to call it. And, and I hit on this. It's a question that I've, I've actually received as of late as, you know, what do I think makes a successful young professional, not only at Blackstone, but anywhere. And I use it as part of one of my answers, but being responsible, taking responsibility for anything that's given to you as an assignment or otherwise, being responsive. You never know how important it is just to be responsive, respond to emails, phone calls, and people that are, are, are looking to, to work with you and, and do something with you. And then be proactive, right? There's no better feeling, Ross, when I have you know a more junior person that just goes ahead and just does something without me even asking and gets ahead of things. If you do those three things, being responsible, being responsive, and being proactive, that can lead to a lot of success wherever you are. So remember those three things. Right. Make sure to pick up your phone, everyone, because it might be Blackstone trying to get a hold of you for exactly. an interview. <laughs> <laughs> and you might not have such good friends who come and yeah, pull you in. You very know. true. Third question. Jack, you've got a lot going on. You're general counsel for a business unit at Blackstone. You're involved in a number of nonprofits, including Scholars of Finance. You've got Raina, your wife, you've got several kids, Juliana, like all your, your little ones. How yeah. do you manage work-life balance and find time for outside interests like scholars of finance and stay healthy amidst all the chaos? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking for the 25th hour, Ross. So when you find it, please let me know. But no, seriously, I think I pride myself on, on being involved with not only everything that I do professionally and, and outside for some of the organizations that I work with, including Scholars of Finance, but but my family and, and knowing that they come first and you can ask anybody, I, I do anything and everything I can to, to be a part of my kids' lives, um, Jack, Jalen, Juliana. And then, you know, my wife is also a practicing attorney, so she's doing the same thing. So it's crazy at times. I'm not even going to lie to anybody listening out there. It is not easy, but you got to make it work. You got to make it happen. You got to be responsible, responsive, and proactive, even with your family. So try everything you can to make that practice, make that game, make that recital, and make sure that you're, you're an involved parent. Because yes, we all want to be great in our professional careers, but we, we need to be great with our families as well. So do whatever you can to, to make it happen. And I, I'm very intentional about that and try my best. Not saying I make everything, but I damn sure try to, for sure. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Jack. Thanks. Coming up on time, I'm just going to skip to my last, my fifth rapid fire question. So it'll be for today. You've okay. been so generous with the time you've given to Scholars of Finance. You've been a big supporter of ours one of our key champions in our founding partnership with Blackstone, one of our momentum investors, one of our, our major multi-year OPEX donors. What stood out to you about Scholars of Finance and our mission and why might you encourage others to support our work? Yeah, you know, so impressed with, with SOF. And the biggest thing that jumped out at me, Ross, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, but is the idea of building leaders and building leaders what I think is the right way through integrity, humility, and ethics. That's important to me. I've always thought of myself as a leader from athletics to school to now my professional career. And I know what I'm doing right now is preparing for someone to come along 10 years from now. And I think doing my part with Scholars of Finance and helping build and create the next generation of leaders is so important to me and, and doing that the right way. And really, being with the students and having them take a lead on this as well, I think is beautiful. It's important. 
and it will lead to the next leaders on the street and, and otherwise. Thanks, Jack. Thank you so much. And to our Howard students, if you're listening, you should thank Jack. Jack made the founding sponsorship for our Howard University SOF chapter happen. Jack, thank you so much for your time today. So grateful, wonderful conversation. We'll have to have you back on in the future. In the meantime, want to wish you a happy rest of your holiday season. Thank you. Love to do it again, Ross, and and keep going, doing what you're doing and, and growing Scholars of Finance. Looking forward to seeing what happens next. Thanks, Jack. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.